Hey, it's Mark. The pandemic provided a huge tailwind for the pharma industry to digitize advertising. As streamed video content became an everyday part of most viewers' lives, it was only logical that pharma brands would need to continue reaching them. While many brands have scaled back those COVID-era digital media investments, the use of channels like Search, Display, and Connected TV by brands to reach audiences remains historically high. MMNM's own data show that last year, video in particular, which includes programmatic and CTV, was one of the fastest growing channels on both sides of the audience mix, both HCP and consumer. Yet Pharma's digital ad wallet is a volatile and nascent thing. Proponents of over-the-top media often need to make the case all over again. That's where Chris Schneider comes in. Schneider is Roku's health and wellness marketing lead. And Jack, with MMNM's annual media summit coming up this Wednesday, November 8th, you interviewed Chris, who's actually speaking at the event, for a preview of his talk, especially about bolstering relationships with change-worry pharma marketers, right? Yeah, we had a chance to talk earlier, and it was a great conversation. He's obviously very excited for the panel and getting to talk about some of the digital health and marketing trends that he's been paying attention to, and obviously how the streaming sector is evolving with different platforms, the emergence of ad-supported tiers, and all these different options that brands have have to be able to get in front of different targeted niche consumer audiences. So it was a great conversation. I really look forward to having our listeners not only hear the conversation, but then be able to hear his insights at the Media Summit on Wednesday. Excellent. Yeah. And he's, um, you know, not only a disciple of streaming, but he's uh, sitting on a lot of really interesting learning. So that's a really interesting conversation. And uh, Lesha returns with a health policy update. Hey, Lesha. Mark, today I'll break down the Federal Trade Commission's recent effort to crack down on pharma companies when they don't correctly list patents in the FDA's Orange Book. And finally, Jack, what's trending in healthcare this week? This week, we're talking about Brooke Shields having a seizure after drinking too much water, TikTok's skincare obsession, and the launch of the Alex Trebek Fund. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Chris, great to have you on the show. Super pumped to be here. Really looking forward to our panel this week. Yeah, we're glad to have you on here to preview the Media Summit. Obviously, we're excited to be hosting our second annual one on Wednesday, November 8th. Tell me a little bit about what you're most looking forward to and that we can hop into the panel that you had just mentioned. Yeah, sure. So I'm really excited to be up there on the stage with my colleagues from Samsung, PulsePoint, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. I think we're going to give the audience some really solid pieces of information to think about. And when they leave that day, hopefully something to take action upon. So we love bringing up actionable insights. And really, you know, the title of this panel, The Streaming Revolution's First Hiccup, is something that we're really all excited to talk about. I think that when you think about where pharma is in general, it's it's an exciting time to be in the streaming ecosystem. And I think we'll talk about a few major themes if you want me to kind of go into some of those. I think that'd be really helpful for our audience because I think they look at everything that's taking place in the streaming sector right now and they say, oh, we have you know opportunities galore, but we're trying to target our messaging to specific patients and we want to get certain brands in, in different areas. Is that stuff that you're going to be focusing on or is it going to be a little different? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think we're going we're gonna to talk about, I think, three major themes where we are as a pharma industry with you know streaming advertising adoption 
streaming macro trends and the consumer experience. And then I think finally, strategies for how pharma marketers can really make streaming work for their brand. So to kind of touch on what you said, you know, how CTV can can show up differently for different brands, whether it's a brand with a smaller niche indication or a brand that needs, you know, really large scale awareness driving tactics. When you look at the connected TV landscape right now, maybe what are some of the more misunderstood aspects of it? Because I always see campaigns that launch and they say, you know, we have a connected TV angle. I talk to a lot of marketers and they understand the importance of it. But, you know, it's not just that you find yourself on connected TV. There has to be a strategy and a goal and metrics that you're following. What is probably the most misunderstood aspect of actually getting into that space? Yeah, I'm, su- I'm super excited you asked me that question because I think a big part of my role at Roku is really around myth busting. And so one of the things that we've talked a lot about in the industry with clients, with agencies is around some of these aspects that are misunderstood. So one of the ones we talked about earlier last year was around cord cutters. So When you think about Roku and our place in the streaming ecosystem, we're America's number one streaming platform by our stream. We have 75 million active accounts and 64% of those accounts are cordless, meaning they don't have access to linear TV. And so when you think about that, it aligns with the overall macro where Nielsen said that over 50% of homes in the US don't have pay TV. So when you think about cord cutters, these are potentially large parts or large audiences that aren't seeing messages in a 100% non-skippable format on the largest screen in the home. And so we worked with Lucid last year to kind of quantify that. And we, we wanted to look at the gap in awareness across pharma brands between cord cutters and linear viewers. And what we found were that cord cutters were 35% less aware of the top advertised pharma brands than linear TV uh, consumers. And so that has massive implications on public health. And so that's one myth that we looked to bust. And we also looked at HCPs too. And we found that primary care physicians who were cord cutters were 14% less aware of the top advertised brands as well. And so... When you think about the overall scale of streaming, a lot of brands will think of streaming as incremental to linear. And that's a great strategy. But what they're not realizing is there is the scale to get that broad awareness that you're going for. So whether it's broad awareness that you're looking for or whether you're trying to reach a more niche audience, that's an aspect of CTV that brands can really capitalize on. And can you talk about both from the patient and the HCP perspective, the downstream effects of not having that brand awareness with target audiences? Because I've, I've seen a lot of studies and I've talked to different leaders who say that, you know, it's not just the fact that, oh, maybe they don't necessarily know your brand as well. It's really if there's a product that you're trying to get into a patient population that has a certain condition or disease state and they're not able to hear that messaging that impacts their health down the line. That can have detrimental effects the same way that you talk about if a primary care physician who is writing those prescriptions or is taking care of these patient populations, if they're not interacting with your brand or your drug, that means that that's not getting prescribed to that audience you want to be a part of. Totally. And that's such a great point because really, why do we advertise? We advertise in all industries to connect brands with the consumer. And for 
pharma, there's a patient on the end of that advertising that if they don't understand the brand messaging, if they don't understand the benefits to them, they're not going to ask their doctor and they're not going to potentially receive treatment that could really benefit their lives. And so it's an important aspect. And, you know, advertising really is that bridge that helps to get people on medication. It, it helps to speed the time from innovation in the lab to a patient taking a medication. I'm curious your thoughts from a brand perspective. Obviously, we're in this kind of new media landscape where obviously, yes, we have a lot of cord cutters. And so cable as we knew it 15 to 20 years ago is not the same thing. We've moved into a really streaming focused era, whether you have some combination of Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, you name it in terms of your offerings, Roku, certainly. But uh, that makes it harder than to get in front of certain target audiences. The price of streaming has gone up, which I know a lot of people are either, you know, getting their login from somebody else, or they're just certain they're just not doing streaming anymore. How is that complicated the equation where it's not just, well, if you're not on cable, you're on streaming, but now if you're not on streaming, where is that audience? How do you get that message out there? Yeah, sure. So I think really the hiccup is that going ad free is getting harder for the consumer as the price between, you know, ad free and ad supported widens and the macro economy strain. So you mentioned the wallet getting bigger for consumers you know, the, the growth of streaming is is still up and to the right. And, but the, the future, the real winner is in ad supported. And this is a huge opportunity for advertisers because, you know, even if the total streaming hours were to, let's say, decline, the number of ad supported streaming hours as part of that pie is likely to rise, which ultimately is a great opportunity for advertisers who are looking to get in front of consumers on that premium inventory. And so what you'll see is either one of two things happen. You'll see ad supported rise or, or you'll see churn across apps. And so that presents a challenge for advertisers because a consumer that is going to churn could be, you know, in one app at the beginning of the year, but then not in that app at the end of the year. So as an advertiser, what we tell people is to buy the platform, not the pieces. And that's because if you work with a platform that has scale, you're able to reach a streamer no matter where they are in the ad supported ecosystem, whether it's on the Roku channel, or if it's on one of the hundred ad supported apps that are out there, you're able to reach that streamer across their journey. Just to clarify on that, too. So you're talking about, like, say, if I started 2024 and I had Netflix and then Netflix raises the price and I decide to go to Paramount Plus or someplace else where I feel like I'm going to have a better experience at a better price point. Is that what you're kind of referring to? So basically, when you think about churn, a person that is a serial churner is kind of the modern era channel changer, right? So they're going to start in one app, cancel and then re-sign up or maybe not re-sign up at all. And so that creates headaches for advertisers that are buying on a channel by channel level because the consumer that starts the year in one app may not be the same consumer that ends the year on that app. And so that's why we say buy the platform, not the pieces, because when you work with a platform with scale, you're able to you know, find the audience regardless of the content across their streamer's journey. So 
With Roku, we have our owned and operated channel called the Roku channel. And then we have access to inventory across the top 100 ad-supported apps that are out there. And so wherever that audience that you're trying to find spends time, that's where we're able to then align your ad spot to. Have there been any sort of conversations, Chris, you know, whether internally or when you're talking with brands that are trying to advertise on your platform about the potential for burnout or consumers being like, you know, I remember when Netflix was, you know, ad free. I remember when X platform was ad free and I didn't have to, you know, I pause my TV now and I see an ad there. Like, is there any potential there where it's like, yeah, there's more opportunity for brands, but maybe consumers have changed in terms of how they receive the message or is that something that's not top of mind? No, it's a, it's a great question. And I think that the one thing to remember is that streaming will have half the ad load of traditional linear TV. So when you think of that experience, that's a positive for consumers. I do think that discoverability is a major issue. And to put that into context, right now globally, there's 2.5 million pieces of unique content and it takes a streamer 10 and a half minutes to find what they want to watch. That's up from seven minutes in 2019. So that is major. And when you think about consumers, you know, broader than that, there's an additional like 20% of consumers that just turn on the TV and have no concept of what they want to watch. And that's all according to Nielsen's gauge report. And so discoverability is definitely a challenge. And that's where Roku which really serves as the gateway to the streaming experience can help be a positive impact there. Roku can help brands to be a part of the solution because we can help align brands to help audiences discover content. And what I mean by that is that we can curate content and promote it on our platform. So to put that even into further context, let's say you're a diabetes brand, we could curate a content playlist for your brand to sponsor like healthy cooking. And our Roku brand studio could even take it a step further to actually create a cooking show that your brand can surround. And this really builds trust with streamers and really helps them to solve that problem of discoverability. And if you have a Roku device, you'll know that on the left-hand side, you have different zones and, and a search functionality. And in the middle, you have all the apps that you can personalize and upload. On the right-hand side is what we call our marquee, which takes up a third of the screen. And that's really where we can promote content to certain audiences. And that's where we generate a lot of our sponsorships from. I appreciate you detailing what Roku has been able to do in this space. I know that a lot of other competitors are, are taking similar approaches as they try and work through a fragmented media landscape. When you look at media dynamics in the healthcare space now, what are you most optimistic about in terms of changes? Obviously, we saw a lot of different um, approaches to advertising through COVID as more people went online and that's where their world is. I know there's been a, a renewed focus on digital and certainly an interest in AI and what that can mean for advertising. But what are what really gets you going in terms of like, okay, we're kind of moving in the right direction as an industry. We're engaging with the consumer in ways that we haven't before. Yeah, I think it's working with clients. And when you work with clients and you, you zoom out even further, you can kind of think about the pharma industry 
in terms of that relationship with linear and streaming. And, you know, in 2022, Media Radar mentioned that um, pharma spent 65% of their ad dollars on linear television and they're, they're missing audiences, which, which we talked about. But we're starting to see brands test and learn. We're starting to see a majority of brands scale and then we're, we have some brands that are really leaning in on streaming. And so that growth is, is going, you know, up and to the right. And ultimately, that benefits the patients on the end. And it benefits us being able to connect with, with consumers in, in new and unique ways. And I think one of the things that is really exciting to me is the fact that CTV makes every brand a TV brand. And why I say that is because you can connect with a small audience on CTV because of the targetability or a broader audience. And so that opens up the mix for some of these brands that are approved with a narrow audience. So across the FDA approvals, if you look each year, there's an average of 45 brands that are approved. More and more, these brands are niche. And so the fact that they might they may not have ever thought of themselves as a TV brand, right? That might not have been a part of their identity, but because of this channel, that identity can change for them and it's a new way for them to engage with patients. I appreciate you going through what makes you optimistic on the media landscape front. I want to ask you conversely where you maybe see room for improvement, maybe in terms either of approaches to advertising when you're talking with brands, or maybe what you even like to see streaming take a different approach uh, going forward. I think there's a notion within pharma that everyone wants to be innovative, but they want it to be done once before. And it's because of the medical legal review process and how it's, it's challenge. And, you know, I'd love to see brands take more risks and, and explore, you know, the different ad products that are out there within the streaming ecosystem. We see a lot of video, we do see sponsorships, but brands need to really think about how they can heavy up on sponsorships to connect with consumers in new ways. We know that when brands work with the consumer at a new level, it drives trust. And we saw through survey that driving trust makes people want to try new medications. And so I, I think it comes down to like, how can you build flexibility into your process as a marketer on the brand side? to really lean into these new opportunities that streaming presents. I think a little flexibility would go a long way, like you said, in terms of both streaming and in terms of how brands decide to advertise to their target consumers. I've really enjoyed having you on the show here, Chris. Obviously, very excited to see you in person on Wednesday and hear your insights. Wanted to see if there was anything else you want to share to the audience that would get them excited and uh, tune into the Media Summit on Wednesday. It's a great panel. Um, you know, we have really good representation from the streaming ecosystem and third-party DSPs and also clients. So we're going to get a really good collective group on the stage to talk through the ways that brands can really lean into the streaming era. So super excited to work with you and uh, MM&M and detail all of these things. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Chris. Really appreciate you sharing your insights and look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. Thanks, Jack.
Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. The Federal Trade Commission has been on a spree lately cracking down on the pharma and healthcare industry, from targeting major mergers and acquisitions to launching inquiries into pharmacy benefit managers as the national scrutiny on high drug prices remains top of mind. Now the FTC is doubling down on pharma companies that improperly list patents for drugs in the Food and Drug Administration's registry for patents, known as the Orange Book. In September, the FTC rolled out a policy statement that targets, quote, sham patents in the Orange Book. A patent in the Orange Book can prevent generic drugs from entering the market for up to 30 months. Pharma companies that list sham patents are doing so to stifle competition and keep drug prices high, the FTC argued. FTC Chair Lena Khan noted in a statement that, quote, improper patent listings in the Orange Book illegitimately delay or lock out generic manufacturers from entering the market, depriving Americans of access to lower cost medicines and drug products. She added that, quote, we won't hesitate to use all our tools to combat illegal practices that are inflating the price of health care, including medicines. The FTC's move followed calls from lawmakers to address the issue, including Senator Elizabeth Warren, who called on the FDA to tighten guidelines on it. The FTC has been eyeing the issue for more than two decades now, since in 2002 it released its first complaint against BioVail Corporation for wrongfully acquiring a patent license for blood pressure drug Tiazac. The FTC said that pharma companies could face legal action if they choose to improperly list patents moving forward. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Trending. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. So we have a couple stories that missed the cut this week, including a TikTok interview that's generated interest since it features a woman claiming to be pharma bro Martin Shkreli's girlfriend as well as Buffalo Bill safety DeMar Hamlin returning to Cincinnati about 10 months after suffering cardiac arrest during Monday Night Football to surprise the emergency personnel who saved his life with scholarships named after each of them. But we're going to start today with water, specifically too much water. Actress Brooke Shields told Glamour in an interview last week that she suffered a full-blown grand mal seizure before the recent Glamour Woman of the Year show. She said, quote, I was preparing for the show and I was drinking so much water and I didn't know I was low in sodium. I was waiting for an Uber. I get down to the bottom of the steps and I start evidently looking weird. And the people I was with were like, are you okay?" She continued, I drank all this water. I leave my house and they kept asking me, do you want coffee? And I was like, no. Are you all right? I go, yeah, great. Then I walked to the corner for no reason at all. I'm like, why am I out here? Then I walk into the restaurant and I go to the sommelier who had just taken an hour to watch my run through. At this point, Shield says that everything went black. Her hands dropped down to her side and she went headfirst into the wall. She said that she was frothing at the mouth with a blue face, trying to swallow her tongue before being loaded into an ambulance with an oxygen mask on. Notably, this grand mal seizure, which affects 25% of all patients with seizures, took place next to Oscar-nominated actor Bradley Cooper. Shields says she is fine now and that doctors eventually determined that she had low sodium and drank too much water, basically flooding her system and drowning herself to the point that it induced a seizure. Obviously, a scary uh, scene for Brooke Shields. We're glad that she's feeling better. Obviously, she's had a number of health scares over the years. But, you know, I give her credit for being open with something that admittedly we don't really talk a lot about, do we, Lesha? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like we we get a different celebrity every week on this uh, podcast who, uh, you know, shines a light on a rare and unusual medical issue. Um, and this is definitely one of them. Um, you tend to hear about how people aren't drinking enough water usually and like dehydration issues, um, you know, but it is a real emergency if you get to the point of drinking too much water. According to the Mayo Clinic, um, it's not common. Um, it's rarely a problem for your average healthy adult. But it can be an issue among athletes, for example, if they're trying to drink excess fluids during um, workouts. Too much water intake results in your kidneys not being able to get rid of it. Your sodium content in your bloodstream becomes diluted. And it's a condition called hyponatremia, and it is life-threatening. So good to hear that Shields was able to recover and, you know, just a, a reminder to continue drinking your, your eight glasses of water a day, but definitely don't overdo it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Lesha, that, that one usually hears the opposite with regard to water intake. And it's uh, interesting in, in terms of the uh, way a person can can fulfill that uh, eight glasses daily requirement. You can get it through coffee, through juice, uh, any, anything basically that includes water in it. But uh, I'm acknowledging my ignorance on this one. I was surprised to read uh, how common hyponatremia is in both inpatients and outpatients, according to the medical literature. But Shields revealing that she already had low sodium levels at the time she was consuming lots of water, which is obviously a dangerous combination, made her perhaps more susceptible to this. If one has kidney problems, that would be another example where excreting excess water could be an issue and the system can become overwhelmed. But for most of us, it's just making sure, like you said, we're staying within that normal range. And uh, the Cleveland Clinic notes that adding salt to the diet is another way to manage the hyponatremia. So I would suggest pretzels. It mentions in the story, too, that her doctors basically said you have to eat more potato chips, which if that's the <laughs> sentence that you have to get, there are worse there are worse medical treatments in my book. We're going to throw this one over to Lesha for the next story. Sure. So I'm going to talk about the skincare craze on TikTok. There are turmeric face masks, skinimalism routines, slugging, facial flooding, and many more skincare trends. TikTok has an obsession with skincare, but medical experts have a few concerns. Some of the top videos on the app fall under the skincare hashtag and gather more than 25 million views per video. The amount of information about skincare products from retinol to hyaluronic acid to vitamin C can be pretty overwhelming at times. TikTok's preoccupation with achieving the perfect skin is far bigger than any one single trend. Still in users' ongoing quest to perfect their skincare routine, some questionable trends and scores of claims and misinformation about dermatology appear. Some of the sketchier trends include one that involves eating a spoonful of Vaseline every day for better skin. In addition, as young people experiment with skin products, they position themselves as experts in the field, posting videos to instruct others on how to take care of their skin. As a result, dermatologists and other medical experts are competing with a fountain of skincare content on TikTok, including these influencers who arguably hold more sway over young patients than themselves. In response to that, some healthcare professionals have sought to cut through the noise and reach those audiences. The Cleveland Clinic, for example, has put out a blog post responding to different TikTok trends with uh, medical experts offering guidance on what skincare trends can be useful, which ones are totally unnecessary, and which ones can be flat out dangerous. As you can imagine, many of TikTok's skincare tips are not the ones your doctor would recommend, the clinic noted. Some are harmless, but ultimately unnecessary, while others are actually very dangerous. 
So skincare is one of those topics that's so vast and um, popular on, on the platform that users really do have to cut, learn how to cut through the noise. Um, obviously, this is another example of HCPs, sort of the tug and pull between influencers and HCPs of who has, you know, more sway over patients. Um, you know, and, and curious if either of you have thoughts on on how HCPs moving forward can handle a topic as big as skincare and dermatology that has so much popularity on the trend, but really more people are looking to influencers for information on this. I'll take a first stab at it, Lesha. I think, and and I always want to note that there's always a line that Lesha includes in any of these stories about social media. And when I got to eating a spoonful of Vaseline, that was the first one where I got that just vis- visceral cringe, but it is a challenge. I, I would I would say that it's probably a real priority for the listeners in our audience that are you know on the agency side or market these products to say it's already competitive enough going against your rivals and your opponents on a day to day basis. But when you're then trying to reach consumers who are you know taking any sort of advice they get from an influencer, whether that's a major influencer or a micro influencer who maybe they have more of a trusted relationship with. I don't know how you necessarily break through that. I think you, everyone always says, you know, more information, more reliable information, more trusted information and communicating that across. But that's got to be an issue when the playing field is so different than what it was years ago. I know that skincare has always kind of been touch and go in terms of different trends and fads and stuff like that. But this one seems, you know, particularly troublesome in terms of maybe some of the more dangerous ones out there. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, you know, we, we did a roundtable recently um, on digital transformation and pharma of all topics, but we happened to have some participants there from uh, one of the aesthetic companies um, whose name I won't mention. But, um, you know, we were talking about this in, area of influencers and they made the great point that in uh, plastic surgery, the plastic surgeons become just as influential as anybody and they, they develop their own followings. Oftentimes, we've we've seen their marketing. It's oftentimes a, a different breed uh, than the typical RX branded marketing. Um, uh, in terms of, um, you know, they they really hold a lot of sway. Uh, you know, with their patients, their patients look to them for aesthetic advice. And then when it comes to say going under the knife or using Botox or, or whatever it might be, a lot of them are you know, obviously take a lot of care in their own appearance and, uh, and it, it really, um, you know, helps them to, uh, cut through that noise, you know, with bona fide, uh, med- medically, uh, evidence-backed information. And so I'm sure dermatologists, this is not lost on many dermatologists who, who sort of also kind of straddle that line into, you know, where it becomes sort of aesthetic, um, and a mixed mix of, you know, aesthetic and, and medical. But, uh, you know, where I'm going with this is like, I guess dermatologists would need, need to become more, um, like their plastic surgeon counterparts in terms of, you know, developing that following, being more, you know, aggressive in terms of injecting evidence-based, um, advice into this, um, comment stream or, or doing their own TikToks. Uh, and, and Lesha, you, you point out some dermatologists in your story. So I guess that trend is already uh, afoot, but perhaps it's nascent and just needs to become more prominent. For our final story, I have a answer for you followed by a question. This pancreatic cancer research fund was launched last week with more than $1 million in contributions. What is the Alex Trebek fund? Stand Up to Cancer and Jean Trebek, the widow of the longtime Jeopardy host, recently launched the fund to support research into a major cancer with one of the highest mortality rates. Trebek and the estate of Barbara Hanania 
have donated more than $1 million to the cause, and Stand Up to Cancer will be fundraising throughout November, which is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Readers will recall that Trebek hosted Jeopardy from 1984 to 2020 and spent the last year or so of his life battling pancreatic cancer. A beloved part of American TV, Trebek was public with his battle with the disease and through his namesake fund will continue to make an impact on the lives of patients. Now, Lesh, I'll throw it over to you. I don't know if you are a lifelong fan of Jeopardy like myself, but obviously I remember when Alex was diagnosed and obviously, you know, the stories and the reporting that came out during his battle and brought a lot of attention to pancreatic research. Um, And it's really encouraging that through this fund, he'll be able to do the same thing going forward. Yeah, you know, it's it's always um, good to hear when celebrities have a positive influence um, and on healthcare, as we've discussed many times before. And in light of this being Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, I actually did an interview last week um, for a separate story, Jack, I'm working on related to Pancre- Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month with a um, pancreatic cancer survivor and advocate who really mentioned that, you know, it actually tends to be a little uh, harder to shine a spotlight on pancreatic cancer in particular compared to other more common cancers like uh, breast cancer, for example. Um, Pancreatic cancer ranks around 12th in the list of most common cancers. So it's probably not often as talked about as other types of cancer. You know, so it's always it's always good to hear um, when celebrities are able to use their influence to move forward cancer awareness or funds and donations. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what other initiative initiatives pop up during pancreatic awareness month. Absolutely. And, uh, just to, um, add another observation, you know, I, I see a lot of parallels here with, uh, the movement toward a lot of disease research being funded by the patient community overall. You know, I think, uh, groups like Nord, um, our track have, have seen a huge uh, spike in, you know, funding for research coming from the uh, patient advocacy community and, and, you know, funds like this. And so, so this type of thing, Alex Trebek Pancreatic Cancer Research Fund, I think kind of highlights that trend, you know, of, um, you know, this kind of grassroots movement, uh, which kind of alongside uh, the traditional uh, route, which is, you know, biopharma uh, you know, sponsoring clinical trials um, uh, is really coming into its own, you know, in, in terms of uh, a, a real driving force uh, for areas that have historically been neglected uh, and uh, that could use more attention and pancreatic cancer, certainly uh, no exception. So great, great to see this uh, effort get started here. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the MMNN podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's episode when we'll be joined by Trinity Life Sciences CEO Leslie Orn. And in the meantime, we look forward to seeing many of you at this Wednesday's MMNN Media Summit coming up November 8th. Take care, everybody. That's it for this week. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. 